How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We're going in reverse order here today at the Plastic Podcasts, not so much plastic as elastic, with two women artists who returned to Ireland from Britain. Maureen O'Connell, or Mo, is an award-winning writer, actor and director based in Dublin, and her film Spa Weekend is currently garnering laurels at festivals around the globe. Meanwhile, actor, writer, director Mary Tynan speaks to us from Galway, where she has founded Notes from Xanadu, which she describes as probably the world's first online art centre and hosts everything from music to talks to theatre and stitch and bitch sessions. I'm in the middle of the curiously named Storm Christoph when we talk, so my first question is a wild and windswept, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm doing great today. All right. Um, I suppose for the benefit of both of our listeners, uh, if you'd like to say hello with your names and that way they can tell who's speaking. Sure. Uh, my name's Maureen O'Connell or everyone calls me Mo. Hi, my name's Mary Tynan. And I'm Doug, um, just in case there was any confusion. So um, if we can go back to uh, the, the, the first thing would be that you both left Ireland in order to go over to, to, to England and specifically London. Um, so if I can ask, uh, first of all, Mary, um, you, were, you, you were born in England, but raised in Galway, essentially, yes? That's right, yes. I was born in um, uh, West London, very West London, out near Heathrow Airport, and lived a little while in Essex as well, and then moved to Ireland when I was seven. And I basically went back when I was uh, early 20s and spent most of my adult life there. Um, North London, West London, East London, every part of London apart from south of the river. I never lived south of the river. What about you, Mo? Three years, born in Dublin, uh, lived in Wicklow in the countryside in the sticks for a bit, moved back to Dublin, then went to Rada in 2009, um, and then did three years there, uh, graduated 2012 and then stayed for about two years in London, two and a half years maybe, and then came back to Ireland in 2015, the end of 2015, and um, uh, started doing research for a 1916 short film I want to make for 2016 the centenary of the rebellion so so yeah so the and then and then I stayed so um you came across in order to be part of the course in RADA first of all yes that's right yeah uh, and Mary what brought you across to back across to London um I suppose just suppose opportunities really um uh um I came over like at a time when uh, I think it was just before the boom started in Ireland so there wasn't really any uh any work here and um I just I'd always loved London anyway um I'd always kind of wanted to live there and uh, um in terms of doing things like acting and stuff like that um and just I don't know just general opportunity I just like I did really really love London always I just felt like it was um as there was a television program I saw once which said and at its best, a city is like a gigantic playground. And um, that's what I felt like about London. It was just, you could work all sorts of places. You could visit all sorts of places. You could go to the British Museum. You could go sit by the river. You could, everything you could think of was there. And um, yeah, I just thought it was, it was um, a better place, um, especially since I've mostly always been single. I've always thought it's um, a better place for a single person to live. But did you still have one foot in Galway? Um, well, I had family in Galway, yeah. Um, I had like um, uh, uh, my parents, um, well, my mum died quite a while ago, but initially I had her as well, my dad and my, my brother and sister, and now their children as well. So yeah, I did have that. 
Um, but my um, neither of my parents are originally from Galway, so we're not like Galway people as such. I wouldn't have had like loads of cousins here or anything like that. But yeah. And what was London like for you, Mo? Uh, yeah, it was grand. I mean, I suppose the first three years I didn't really get to know it that well because uh, I had it so intense. And um, we were told really not to work and stuff because it was so intense, you know, you'd be too tired. I kind of had to work though. <laughs> I worked in Irish bar in second year uh, to help pay bills and things like that. Um, which actually was a nice relief from RADA, as in like RADA is great fantastic but then to be in this crazy Irish bar at night you know people killing each other and stuff uh, literally like all the time it's just bananas it was a very funny Irish pub and uh, then to go back into Rada then the next day it was great it's actually quite rich the contrast um but yeah no I I, I love London everything that Mary was saying but I do think that it was difficult being an actor because you take a job that is uh, low paid so that you can remain free to audition if you get an audition uh, and then if you get a part in something you can say okay pause the job so, so say something like ushering in a theater or doing bar stuff you know those types of jobs you can pause go off for a couple of months do your theater job whatever and then come back to it you know but that means that you can't always successfully pay rent or bills and you're constantly stressed about that and then just to have like a bit of crack you're always kind of wondering can I go out can I can I actually spend this money on drink tonight <laughs> can I have a party because like you just don't have the money um because it's so low paid and the rents are so and the bills are so astronomical so so yeah it was a uh, it was kind of um it's a little bit tricky. It, it would have been nicer if I was just richer and then I would have enjoyed it a lot more. If only I'd been rich. But there was lots of enjoyment in saying, for instance, I worked in the old Vic Theatre and that was great. And everyone's sound there. And then we'd get cheap drinks because we were staff. So we'd, we'd hang out then in the bar downstairs afterwards and we'd have the crack. And that was great. But it just meant you didn't get to go to all these, you know, famous nightclubs that might be in London because you couldn't go. It would have been easier if I'd had more money. That may well be my gravestone. When, when, when you did get parts, were you generally typecast because of your Irish accent? Well, so I know the thing is I uh, only got to audition for Irish parts. So it was kind of annoying because uh, I, I can do every accent and I love, I love the English accent and I love all its varying different accents within it. And I love playing those parts, you know, so. And I love Americans, I love all different types of accents, but uh, because my name is Maureen O'Connell, I just get typecast and just get seen for the Irish part. So we'd be up against about 30, 36 Irish actresses nearly all of the time. Um, and yeah, I, I, I got a good view, which was nice, but it would also mean that you'd be like hated by the other Irish actresses because you're constantly, you know, competing against uh, them, the same people like over and over again. Um, yeah, no, but it, it was great when, you know, once you got something, you're just delighted to play anything really. Uh, but yeah, obviously I would have liked more auditions, that would have been nice. Uh, I mean, I'm like, no, I wasn't typecast as Irish, but I did actually end up doing an awful lot of Irish stuff because there was a lot, lot of opportunities in that area. Um, I, I did a lot of work with uh, um, something called London Irish Theatre, um, uh, so yeah, um, which was great. Um, it's, it's, I, I found it great to be able to do both and have the 
um, to have the sort of, uh, I don't think there's a word for it, the sort of dual accent. Because I kind of have, I like two native accents because from growing up in both countries. Uh, so that's um, very handy. And I think it also made it easier for me to learn other accents as well. What was London Irish theatre like? It was, yeah, it was good. It was interesting. Um, it was, it was um, uh, run out of um, uh, the London Irish Centre in Camden. So that's why, why the, um, it got its name. The producer had previously used a different name and then when he came based there, he, um, he, he did that. It, it was a great way of meeting other people. I hadn't been massively involved in sort of the Irish scene in London before that. Um, and, uh, and then when I started um, working there, I met a lot of, Irish people, I met a lot of second generation Irish people, third generation Irish people, also people who just arrived from Ireland, um, people who'd been working actors in Ireland, or people who'd like Mo come to England, you know, straight away to go to drama school or whatever. Uh, a lovely mixture of people, and I even met some English people who wished they were Irish who were working there as well. Um, yeah, and also I think it got me involved with the Irish Centre, which then led to me. Um, uh, sort of re revising my Irish language, uh, which I initially did so that I could audition for Irish language parts. And then I kind of got a bit uh, carried away with that and it became my main hobby. And that led to me uh, joining uh, a group called Erin Browlaus, where we went out drinking in Irish twice a month. And so then I sort of became part of the Gwailgore community in London as well. So uh, I think that's all of that sort of happened because of my first audition with London Irish Theatre because I'd never actually been to the Irish Centre before that. And Mo, I'm, I'm fascinated about this pub of yours. Yeah, it was it was just funny. I remember one time, I don't know what happened, but I was really busy serving all these pints, and I think it was around a match. There was a match that had been a match or something on. Maybe it was Arsenal or someone. I don't know. And um, it was like nearing, um, it was probably after midnight or something, but anyway, I was getting all these uh, drinks. And then all of a sudden, I just looked up, and the whole, it was like a sea Okay, everyone was really, really, really drunk, <laughs> but they were also in a fight, the whole of the pub, and they're all kind of, because they're so drunk, they're kind of moving in slow motion, and <laughs> the whole thing was like a wave of humans trying to drunkenly punch each other, and it just, I don't know how it kicked off, but it just, I was like, oh my god, and there was, it was like, there was glasses broken as well, but in slow motion. <laughs> I don't know why they did it. No one got hurt. It was just a ridiculous, funny, kind of almost cartoonish fight and in slow motion. And we all had to stand back, all the staff just stood back and was like, it's great. <laughs> it was just nice kind of anarchy uh, opposing what I was going to then and rather, you know. And what was the pub that you guys went to for when you did your, 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 your drinking in Irish? Oh, we went to a place um, called the Owl Triangle in um, Finsbury Park. And it was actually a Gwelgore pub. The owner came from Connemara. But it was also an Arsenal pub as well. So it was a kind of a strange mixture. Um, but we used to have to cancel our, um, our meetups if there was an Arsenal match on that day or the day after because um, it would be totally swamped. But um, yeah, it was a lovely place. And originally it used to stay open really, really late. Had a late license um, until the neighbours complained, uh, probably about us. I mean, the first time I went there, I ended up sitting there um, with three other Irish girls at four o'clock in the morning, singing as Misha on June. 
Did you find that 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 that, that, that was that was a, also a tendency that's sort of like uh, that sort of coming coming across to England that you would sort of kind of seek out areas that also had had a big Irish contingent? Um, not really. Originally, when I when I first went, um, I went yeah, um, I went to stay in a squat with some other Irish people, but um, then I, I went back briefly and came back again, and after from that, I, I I just went on my own. But I um, it was only really when I started working for London Irish Theatre, uh, basically when I just thought, um, you know, that being Irish could be an advantage to me in booking parts and stuff like that. And then, like I say, I got really into the Irish language and, and I made an awful lot of friends. Uh, um, it, it seemed to be actually an awful lot of Irish people live in sort of Harringay area because um, nearly everybody I'd end up working with in London Irish Theatre would end up living within 10 minutes walk of my, my flat, which was quite strange. So yeah, a lot, an awful lot of people live around like sort of the Green Lanes area. Um, I think probably because there's a lot of flats and rental properties there. What about you, Mo? Uh, no, I, I didn't seek out uh, the Irish people. I, I don't really like doing that, going away to another country and seeking out my own, my own people. Um, but actually just inadvertently kind of ends up happening in a weird way, because I suppose Places I was looking to rent would have been cheap, cheaper places, an awful lot of the places where Irish people ended up in London, because they were the workers who kind of built London and stuff like this would have been possibly kind of you know, places that wouldn't have been as rich, I suppose. So they, were, they would be the places that I'd end up renting, you know, in those areas, uh, in poorer areas, because I didn't have enough money. And so then there'd be loads of Irish people there and be lots of black people there and, you know, uh, lots of different uh, people and not as many English people as you'd want. You want to get to know English people, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, so like usually, like I, I end up um, having kind of friendships from Rada with English people or you know, uh, people that I worked with, so that type of thing. But an awful lot of where I lived was you know, there'd, there'd be quite a lot of Irish people around, <laughs> bloody Irish, you know. <laughs> You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Now, I often say that I'm never sure where these interviews will go, and here's a prime example. With both Mary and Mo having worked as actors, the question of accents and authenticity with British and Irish voices sprang to mind. I wondered how they dealt with a variety of accents from both countries. What follows is an education. I find um, the fact that I actually switched countries when I was seven, I think that's always given me an advantage in that area because I am... Um, Basically, when I I remember making a conscious decision um, to set, to start speaking in an Irish accent so that I'd fit in better, because uh, there used to be a, I don't know if it still goes on, but there used to be an awful lot of stuff at school where kids would like you go on about how they hated the English because of the way history is taught in Irish schools basically. And um, like one of our I remember one of our neighbours saying to us, "Your grandparents killed my grandparents," and I'm like, "My grandparents came from going ah," <laughs> but. Uh, um, you know that um so I, I just kind of i made a conscious decision i think that's uh, so maybe because i did that that was my first experience of learning a, an accent and then it became something where i i sort of imitate people off the television and stuff like that um so i kind of i kind of was very aware of them always i know a lot of people english people especially say they don't have an accent if they have an rp accent they say they don't have an accent and I just say to them, well, if you went to America, would people think you were American? Uh, and, but some American people are the same. I don't have an accent if they speak general American. I'm like, go to Paris and see if you've got an accent. 
Um, so I think it's just, I think it's being very aware, being aware of it and being able to listen and see what the actual differences are. Um, and um, sometimes it's like, it's less than you think. I find a lot of um, English people when they try to do Irish accents are totally overdoing it. And they're taking sort of the main, like probably each part of Ireland has got a, a, a sort of a signature sort of note to it, but they take all of those and make them into one accent. I actually had an American in um, the play there that I was in recently that I was directing and producing. Um, we were doing Riders to the Sea by James Singh. And he, I, I had a little separate session with him on um, on the accent. And he'd, he's, he'd told me he specialised in an Irish accent in his drama school. And he'd, he'd loved the, this play, he'd studied it there as well. And so when I was working with him, he was telling me how he'd actually, what he'd actually taught him in drama school. And they, what they actually taught him is what you see, you know, those terrible Hollywood Irish accents. That is actually, they actually get taught that by their teachers. And so it was like, he's go, oh, right. So I'm actually taking this part from Cork and this part from Belfast and this part from Galway and this part from Dublin and sticking them all together into this really weird, um, weird, weird mixture. I think it's interesting that that guy who had an RP accent said he had a neutral accent. You know, it's in like, it's normal, like he doesn't have an accent. So, so it, it comes from a psychology that they are the norm. When you look historically at RP, it's called received pronunciation. It was made up by Queen Victoria and she administered it to her, her lot, basically to the people. She wanted to differentiate the nobles in inverted commas because <laughs> they're not noble at all. Um, and so that she would know them by, you know, by how, how they spoke. And so the peasants, didn't get taught this accent. So they would have West Country accents. They'd have all different, you know, Liverpoolian accents, they'd have all different types of accents. But um, uh, they certainly wouldn't have received pronunciation because they wouldn't have been wealthy enough to have had someone come to their house and teach them as a kid to receive this accent. So, so the fact that that guy, I mean, it just shows you culturally how, and I, I mean, I, the, the reason why, you know, Irish history is taught the way it is, you know, you hate the English, it's because of a backlash at colonialization. There's a reason for it. We were shot on entirely by the English for 800 years. So there's a reason why it's taught. Our education system is far better than the English. I'm sorry, but it is. I went to RADA and they didn't even know that the Irish had their own language. Uh, as was a girl who went to, she's incredibly uh, rich, wealthy, young girl went to RADA and she went to boarding school and she's you know, had all the airs and graces of uh, almost like royalty. And she went, oh my God, Mo, do you have your own, your own language? And I was like, Daisy, get away from me. <laughs> Don't talk to me. Come on. You know, we're just over the sea. You know, you've got to find out. If your teachers aren't telling you, you know, uh, read a book, maybe, uh, or come over and visit us and talk to us. Do you know what I mean? So there's a reason why there is that anger uh, in schools in Irish history, when we teach history, but we do teach history very well. Uh, I, I will say, you know, with regard to the world, we're far more worldly uh, than uh, the English, because the English just aren't taught it. So when I went to Radha, when we did the Irish season, they didn't know uh, that Cromwell was an absolute beast. They, they, they think that he's a hero. Um, they don't know about the mass graves all around Ireland of what he did to us. Uh, that he is a mass murderer, that he is, a, you know, a psychopath. They don't know any of these things. They, they don't know any of the effects of colonialization. 
And to and to have that guy say who who speaks in received pronunciation, not even an actual proper accent formed by the land, because the reason why Liverpool speak the way they do is because they have the, the wind coming off of the sea into their mouths, which is why they speak the way they do, which is a really beautiful accent. And also they loads of Dubliners that came in as well to Liverpool. It's called the second, you know, Dublin's twin city. So it's all mixed up with Dublin accent and also from the land and from the weather. And that's why they speak that way. So received pronunciation comes from nowhere. Do you know what I mean? It just comes from pure elitism. And so he has an accent, he has an accent more than any of us has a bloody accent. And, and, and it just shows, it signals his absolute lack of awareness. And, 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 and that's why there's such a backlash now of BLM, Me Too, and like, you know, English established, you know, uh, having their, their statues torn down and stuff. Well, you know, at least no one's getting killed. You killed us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Generations of us. We're not killing you. We're only taking down your statues. And it all comes down to accent. All of these things, they, they filter down into accent. They're very, very important to get them right and to know where your own accent comes from. The fact that he didn't even know that and thought his accent was normal. Oh, Jesus, it just makes me so angry, do you know? And rightly so. I always have people say that to me too, who aren't even like, like a friend who was, um, neither of her parents were from English, she was only first generation in England, but she's telling me, she said, I don't have an accent. That, she was the one I said, go to America and see if you've got an accent. And uh, and I've had another friend again, who was uh, not, um, you know, her parents weren't English either. And they don't know what's going on in Ireland now either, because that was the last time I was over on a visit and she said to me, isn't Ireland very homophobic? And I said, well, the prime minister is gay. Oh my God. You know that like we were one of the very few countries to uh, vote ourselves, you know, um, uh, to uh, A, repeal the eight and also for gay marriage. You know, it wasn't just put in, you know, just automatically by a government that came in. We actually voted for it. And now I know, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church had its way with Ireland. And obviously there are tons of really stupid people in Ireland. But we did write, like we did write and we're coming right. And we're, we're, we're getting out of that, you know. So we're far more open. Uh, we're like a beacon of light in Europe, most especially within comparison to Brexit England, you know. So when you came across to, to, to England, I'm, so I'm going to ask Mo this first of all. What were the differences that you felt? Uh, well, I suppose I was going right into Rada, which is a different kind of a place. It's not just kind of, I mean, I love, I mean, I think, you know, English people are very, very nice. I just think that, that there seems to be an, like a, an unawareness of their own uh, history, I would say. Um, and it's the way it's taught. And, and there doesn't seem to be, they're not critical of it. Like, I'd still be critical of the way I, I, I know why I'm taught, you know, certain things, you know, in Irish history. And I know that as well, for instance, in Irish history, that women are, are, are eroded from it. That's another thing that we're kind of all kind of, you know, examining now as well. So but like, I, I know these things. The reason why I know these things is because I was educated to be critically thinking, you know, where I think sometimes that, you know, when I, when I speak to people, especially in RADA, maybe it's a class thing or something, maybe it's kind of people who are who went to, I don't know, Cambridge or something. They just, I don't know, they just didn't have any critical awareness of the education that they had received. They didn't question it. And what's the point of getting educated if you don't question it? So I just think that they, it, it's frustrating an awful lot of people coming, not, not just from Ireland, but from different countries, like, say, Mexico, um, uh, uh, Sierra Leone, where we felt that there was such a uh, kind of an almost condescending, patronizing kind of uh, way that we would be communicated to because we were from these countries or this type of thing. And yet you can see the people are lovely and they're really, really nice. It's just like, 
it's 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 like awareness isn't there necessarily. But I don't think that that's necessary with everyone outside. You know, I, I went straight into RADA, which is this institution, and it's you know, um, you know, the Royal Academy. You know, so it's the British Royals and stuff. So it's 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 a different place. Whereas when I went out and I worked in in kind of say the old Vic and around London and stuff, like you know, English people are lovely. They're really they're like anyone. You know, um. So I suppose I'd just be kind of thinking about the establishment. And you find establishments everywhere, I suppose, in Ireland and England. And I suppose because England had been so powerful for, for, for quite some time, and Rada is like, and ironically, Rada was set up by George Bernard Shaw, an Irishman, which is interesting. Um, but like, yeah, so I suppose it's just, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's, it's kind of more to do with uh, people who, who would be very wealthy who would be in Rada. And you would be kind of stung by 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 their lack of awareness, and yet you can still see simultaneously that they're lovely as well, <laughs> and you really do like them. But you go, Christ, oh my God, that's so racist! What they, what you know, the way they're going on, and oh my God, you know that type of thing. But outside of Rada, uh, I love the I love the English people. I came up, you know a lot earlier than um, than Mo did, and. Uh... It was, I came when it was actually really, things were really good in England still. So um, one thing that I noticed like, um, was everything was half the price. Like, I mean, and it, it, at those days, like you could get good wages as well for temp jobs and stuff like that. And um, the only thing that was, was more expensive over there was um, rent. But um, everything else was really cheap. And I used to be going to the supermarket and be amazed at like what I could come home with, like for a tenner and stuff like this. And uh, um, and um, I didn't, you know, I didn't go anywhere like Rada. I did my acting training in the City Lit. So I didn't actually uh, get to meet that many of those kind of people. Um, uh, um, so I suppose most of the English people I met were just sort of, you know, poor sort of the, sort of the earth, sort of. Um, I mean, I did work in offices and stuff because I, I, I tempted in the city and I didn't meet the people there. But the kind of people I made friends with were all more sort of Essex girls and people like that. And uh, um yeah, I, I suppose I, I actually just at, at the time again we're talking about totally different times. I actually found it, it was it was a lot easier place to live than Ireland. Things were very hard in Ireland when I left, and um, you know it was like there was massive competition for some for, for like a very low level job, like a like a clerical officer or something. People would leave university and do a secretarial course. Um, I knew somebody who left college because she got offered a job on the counter in the post office. Um, that's what that's what it was like. Whereas in England, it was like people people didn't even bother staying at school after sixteen because they could get such good jobs. You only went you only did your A levels if you were going to go to university, and they couldn't understand how anybody who, who did them would like work as a secretary. Um, so it, yeah, it was a totally different time. Um, and it's you know obviously the England I left and the reason why I left was completely different from that. But I, I assume you want to get onto that one a bit later. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com or alternatively on Amazon, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And now a quick word. If you haven't already subscribed to The Plastic Podcasts, well, why not try now? Simply go to that homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com, scroll down to the bottom, and there you'll see a little box to put your own email address in. 
One confirmatory click later, and you'll be getting details of each and every fresh podcast in the time it takes to blink. We'll be back with Mo and Mary in a moment, but first it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my guests to nominate a member of the diaspora of personal, cultural or political significance to them. This week, Nathan Mannion from Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum, with the story of human daring do, or maybe it's daring don't. There's a guy called Captain Paul Boyton. Um, he was an emigrant. He left as a very young child during the latter part of the Great Irish Famine from Rathangan in County Kildare. His family moved to North America. <clears throat> and he was definitely an innovator. He was a culturally significant person in that his, he wanted to improve the safety of people at sea. So he invented a vulcanized rubber suit that you could wear and that you could paddle along the surface of the water without being submerged. Um, and, it was, and it was supposed to prevent things like hypothermia and in the case of people being shipwrecked or accidents at sea that they could survive. Um, but obviously inventing it wasn't enough. He needed people to be aware of it. He needed people to adopt it. So he became a kind of self-publicist. He decided he would stage a series of very dramatic stunts all around the world to draw attention to his invention and to get people <coughs> interested in it. Um, they were by modern standards he would be a daredevil and they were a bit mad so one of the one of the most interesting ones he did is he boarded a ship in new york that was actually bound for for britain and he wanted to jump off it 250 miles off the coast into the sea to show that and then paddle back to show that his invention was safe um he approached a number of captains in new york harbor about this and they weren't that keen on voluntarily letting somebody jump off their ship. They thought it might be bad for the press. So they said no. So eventually he decided to stow away on a ship, um, which he did, waited till they were out at sea, stuck on his vulcanized rubber suit, had enough food for 10 days in a little rubber bag next to him. He brought a double-headed axe just in case any sharks came along while he was trying to paddle home. And as he was making his way up on deck, he was stopped by a crew member. Obviously, it's quite a strange sight. It's wearing a big black vulcanized rubber suit on on, on the on the ship and the, the captain had him locked up until they were nearly in Ireland. But obviously he must have been a smooth talker because by the time they got near the coast of Cove um, in County Cork, he had convinced him to let him try it. So he jumped off the ship um, near Cape Clear um, with a distant lighthouse um, on the horizon um, as night was coming along. Uh, a storm kicked up. He was paddling towards the shore in very rough conditions. Um, he was submerged a couple of times, but he, but he managed to get through. He reached the shore, but it, unfortunate for him, it was the cliff. So he had to scale the cliff um, in the dead of night. Obviously, in, in this vulcanized rubber suit, he climbed up, um, made his way to the nearest house he could find, which was the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard opened the door in the middle of the night, about two or three in the morning, to this ungodly sight. He wasn't sure what was standing there until he heard the accent. Uh, Boyden told him what he had done and he thought he was mad. He thought he was he had actually just banged his head or he was insane. So he humored him and he let him in. Um, but he didn't believe a word of what he told him. Um, the next morning then Boyton tried to make his way to the nearest big town, Scabreen, so he could send a message to the captain saying he wasn't dead and that he'd survived. Um, and by the time he had got to Scabreen, a crowd had started to follow him. They'd heard about what he'd done. And this is the biggest thing anybody had ever heard of at the time, you know, it was crazy, local news. Um, so he had a huge group of people there when he sent it off. The papers all picked it up. It was in New York, it was in London. His feasts were, were acknowledged. And then from then on, his, his star was on the rise. He, he crossed the English Channel. He crossed the Straits of Gibraltar. He did uh, several thousand mile leg of the Mississippi River. 
Um, he ended up working with P.T. Barnum uh, for, the, for his circus. They built an artificial lake so he could do his, his performances. Um, he demonstrated it for Queen Victoria. She took him on board the Royal Yacht. Um, apparently he mistook uh, one of the ladies in waiting for the Queen and broached her first because she was a little bit better dressed than Queen Victoria. Obviously she was in her drab and her black. He didn't recognize her which was an incident, um, a diplomatic incident that was very cleverly avoided, um, luckily. Um, but yeah, and then he ended up opening the world's first water park in Chicago, uh, Paul Boyton Shoots, and then later opened one on Coney Island. And so he gave the world water parks. He gave the world uh, a safety device that is still used today by deep sea fishermen um, in a slightly modified version all over the world. Um, he, you know, he created press sensation. And yes, his barely barely remembered at all today so he went by the stage name of the fearless frogman um but i think he deserves uh recognition for all of his achievements nathan mannion there and if you want to hear more of nathan's interview or indeed any of the other plastic podcasts simply go to our website www.plasticpodcasts.com click on the episode button and feast your ears you can also find our archive on amazon apple podcasts or spotify now back to our guests, Mary Tynan and Maureen O'Connell. From London, back to Ireland. Mary Tynan's return journey was prompted by her diagnosis of myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME, and the treatment that she received in Britain. So we start by talking about that. Well, I, um, I first got it around, um, I was diagnosed in 2004, actually. Um, I, uh, I, um, I got. I think I got basically what happened was I got some kind of flu or possibly glandular fever, but never went away. And then after about six months, um, I was. Uh, I basically I had loads and loads of other tests to rule out anything else it could possibly be. And then my doctor diagnosed me with um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and I was. Um, I was. I was actually living in Ireland for a while because it was just after I'd been in Poland, and I was. Uh, I was staying in. Uh, in Galway for a few months at that point, um, and sort of between jobs, as it were. And I am. Um, uh, so it's, it's a neurological um, disease that often comes on after a after um, a viral illness, which is why it, a lot of people think that maybe what that's what long COVID is as well. Um, but they haven't had it for long enough to know. So I am. Um, so basically, I got a little bit better, and I was working for a while, and then. Um, and then I, uh, I had some chiropractic work and it kind of went into remission for a while. Um, though I, looking back now, I think maybe that was just a coincidence because it turns out it often happens like that, that you go into remission and then it just comes back worse later on. So I was kind of in remission from about 2005 to 2010, but never like 100%, but you know, well enough to, you know, I was acting all the time I was a supply teaching at the same time I was like you know sometimes doing three or four jobs at the same time like um so um but then it gradually just start, started to come back in about 2010 and year on year it was like getting worse and worse and I could do less and less things and uh and during this time also the political and social climate in in the UK was changing an awful lot and we had austerity and we had television programs like Benefit Street and we had disabled people being yelled abuse at on the streets and the uh, we had people like Atos taking over the benefit system making you basically have to go to court every year in order just to get your basic disability benefits. Um, so once it became clear to me that I was too ill 
to continue working and um, I got turned down for one thing and I didn't bother appealing it and I sort of made my plans to um, come back to Ireland and things here had changed a lot in the meantime as well so it was kind of like to start off with like you know England was up there and Ireland was down there and then they kind of kind of leveled off and then Ireland started to get better than England uh, as England went down and down and Ireland was going up and up and um, uh, so I kind of gave myself as a deadline I said if things haven't improved by by this point I will a list of things if any one of those things had happened I would have probably have stayed uh, none of them did and like I say I got iller and iller and uh, uh, I wasn't a uh, I'd been on uh, statutory stick pay for a while and then I was like on the the employment support allowance but I was I had been told that they don't bother you while you're on your 13 weeks or whatever that you know come off of your stamps but once again after that once they start assessing you and I was just like I can't I just can't handle this because like if I was well enough to handle this I would be I would be well enough to be working um and uh so that's when I came back to Ireland and I just find that the attitude over it is just much a much kinder country now. It's it's just you know it's gentler. The people are just more accepting. Um, there's, there's a few um, exceptions. There's a man on um, on uh, one of the radio stations um, uh, on classic hits who does this talk show and he's very uh, aggressive and comes out with stuff like oh all the people in the doctor's surgery are medical card holders on munchausen's and stuff like that but in general you don't get as much of that here as you do in the uk and people don't demonize they don't think oh all my problems are down to sick people and poor people you know uh, they they don't think that people are far more likely to blame the government than they are to blame the their unemployed neighbor um for, for if they're having problems um and the government as well are nice too. Um, you know, they're, they're not perfect. Um, yeah, you know, this, and we could have a much better healthcare system and stuff. But I've never felt like here that anybody's anybody's going to look at me in a wheelchair or whatever and think scrounger. Um, and that's a big difference. And that's not the England that I moved to in the first place. It's not the England I was born in. It's not the England my parents moved to in the 60s, but that's what it's like now. So... Yeah, I feel safer here, basically. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mo, you um, you also moved back across to, 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 to Ireland at around about the same time, 2015, 2016, you say. Um, yes. And what prompted that? Um, well, so I've been doing acting um, in London just after RADA. And as I say, I was kind of only being seen for Irish parts, which is kind of a bit frustrating because there's very few auditions. But I, I was a filmmaker before I went to RADA anyway. And um, so... I wanted to come back for anyway for 2016 for the centenary, which was the 100 years since the 1916 uh, rebellion, and so there's going to be lots of celebrations about that. My granny was involved in it, and, uh, and she was put in prison in Limerick and stuff like this. So, um, so I felt I had to do something. She was in coming among the Irish female freedom fighters, and um, so I researched that when I came home in 2015, and. Uh, that was a bit too epic. I didn't have enough money for that. So I had no money, really. So I stumbled upon the story of the Irish proclamation of how that was made. And it's a great story. Uh, they had to do it in one night in secret, and they didn't have enough tools to do it. And James Connolly, big revolutionary, came to the masses to do it. And, uh, there's 29 mistakes on it because they had to do, they, they were doing it, you know, 
under duress kind of thing. And uh, the, the, you know, the British were kind of uh, watching them, knew they were up to something, you know, what though? <laughs> and, um, uh, there's like, uh, yeah, so there's upside NEs, there's like different fonts and all this stuff, which I never knew before. And it's a beautiful document as well. It's so beautifully written and the, you know, the thought energy behind it is amazing. It's, it's like, it's, you know, Shakespearean almost when you read it. Um, so yeah, so I decided I'd, I'd make that, uh, and I'd insert my granny into it. Uh, so I played my granny in a, I thought the only person to play her would be me. So, uh, one of the things that she did do, is she, she kind of made bullets and she trans, she transported the bullets and she transported them in potatoes, <laughs> in baskets of potatoes, put them into potatoes. So I put that into the story. Um, just that little scene, there's a little cameo I play. Um, but uh, yeah, so then it's the, the three printers have to print this um, document, they get it printed and then they give it to Project Pierce who proclaims it uh, on the steps of the GPO on Easter Monday. And so we shot outside the GPO and everything and um, yeah, so, so that's what I kind of came home to do is just to make my own stuff. I miss that as an actor anyway, not having your own voice. You know, you always obviously have to give over to the director, so I have to trust the director. But I had directed already, so I kind of had developed a voice and I found it. I love acting, but every now and again, if I do too much acting, I start to get antsy and I want to kind of direct and I want to say something directly from me. <laughs> and then once I do that for a while, I'm like, oh, I'd like to do a bit of acting. So, um, so yes, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. I've been making films and I've been doing uh, acting in, in Ireland and uh yes it's going pretty pretty good at the moment playing your own grandmother yes yeah was that weird no 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 i'd never met her because uh, she died before i was born um but i had read uh, an autobiography that she that she written and uh she just said that being in coming to Mon and everything was the best time of her life and that um she just had the best crack <laughs> you know through the adventurous spirit she was locked up in Limerick prison and stuff. And then when she got out, she was applauded on horseback with her and her mates there, uh, you know. <laughs> and, um, she's mentioned loads of history books and stuff. And then of course, when De Valera came in, what he did was as uh, president, he took the rights away from women after the proclamation saying, you know, equal rights for men and women. And this is, the, you know, one of the big reasons why they, you know, why they were successful was coming in one. You know, they were brilliant what they did to support and to not just support, but they did as, you know, several things. Um, we can't just Markovich leading, um, you know, uh, you know, female Irish soldiers into battle in 1916 and stuff, you know, so it's like they were proper. They were properly part of the whole shebang, you know, and De Valera that just was like, yeah, yeah, back into the kitchens, <laughs> you know, back and just have your babies shut up. And um so obviously she's not a big fan of Del Air and stuff. <laughs> she didn't like that. And she, uh, she found that very difficult. My dad says he, uh, he thinks she found it very difficult having to, he, he thought she would have been a good teacher and uh, she loved the community and stuff. And, but she, she, she found that difficult then having to just retire almost into just being, you know, into the house, milking the cows, just, just being a mother, you know, not that that's, uh, you know, not a worthy thing to do, of course it is, but if you want to do something else, you should be allowed to, obviously. Yeah, so. so you used to make your own films as a kid? Yes, yeah, yeah. I shot, I shot like fairy tales, 
because people would know, but you know, my friends would know what happened in them, so I wouldn't have to write a script. Do you know what I mean? I'd like, you know, it's the bit where Little Red Riding Hood gets attacked now. Come on. <laughs> it's just action. Um, so, so yeah, so I shot fairy tales. I also shot, funnily enough, uh, I'd never seen Psycho, but I used, I basically shot Psycho, essentially. <laughs> it's terrible, though. It's very funny. It was meant to be scary, obviously, uh, but no, it was, um, it was a comedy, an accidental comedy. <laughs> You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. That's a hashtag and a philosophy, all in one. Having spent so much time looking at the past, we spend this last session talking about the present and the future. Mo O'Connell talks about filming in Ireland and founding the Dublin International Comedy Film Festival, while Mary discusses notes from Xanadu, and we talk about how that project went from review blog to being the world's first online art centre. Probably. Um, I was kind of, I'd done a lot since COVID started because um, I'd got involved in this online school and I'd been doing a lot of stuff with that. And, I, and I'd also, some strange reason, got madly into IT again. I'd learned Python programming and stuff and um, kind of just all the sort of thinking outside the box stuff was coming. Like my ideas were just going from everywhere. Um, and I, um, I, uh, so... I just thought, I, you know, obviously I know a lot of people in the arts and I just basically contacted loads and loads of people, um, some of them professionals, some of them semi-professional, some of them amateurs, um, uh, people like singer-songwriters that I knew. I was like, can, I, can you give me some of your videos or some of your recordings, uh, photographers, painters, uh, a friend uh, who does puppetry, um, uh, a zombie film that I was in myself. I asked if I could use that. Um, a lot of writers as well. Um, I have a couple of friends who write regular columns for us. And um, and I got that all together for a launch weekend, which was over the Maybank holiday weekend. So over four days, we had seven different things coming up each day. And it was, um, I promoted it very heavily as well. And we had a, a lot of visitors from my I lost count of the amount of countries. Originally, I was counting. I was going in every day and checking, but you know, you get a bit bored of that after a while. But I think the last count was about 60 or 70 different countries. And there was every continent apart from Antarctica. Um, and it got to the stage where I do actually get people that I don't know who contact me with sub submissions and, and ask to have exhibitions. Um, and we've had people from Ireland do that and people from America do that as well. And I'd always had the, I'd had the theatre in my head before um, the Arts Centre um, because that, what, what that came into my head when I was doing the school because that's when I got into the whole, you know, business of doing stuff in video calls, which I had no experience of really before COVID. I could have counted on the fingers of one hand how many times I'd been on a video call and they would have been auditions. So, um, um, so yeah, I was thrown in the deep end. I, I think I used about 12 different software packages this year, or sorry, last year. Um, but yeah, so I had the idea of the theatre and so then I thought, well, the theatre will be part of the arts centre. It's like, you know, if you had a building that was an arts centre, part of it could be a theatre. Um, so it's it's separate as well because there people, there's people who will go to the theatre who will never look at the arts centre. Um, so I just called it Xanadu Online Theatre to tie it in. And we had a launch concert in uh, September. So again, that was me contacting different people. Some of them were existing contributors. 
Um, so that was just a one night only, it was invited audience. Um, but then obviously the plan was always to, uh, um, to you know, have a proper, have plays and stuff like that. So uh, we decided to do two um, classics, number one, because wouldn't have to uh, pay um, rights, obviously. Um, uh, and, and also I wanted short plays, I wanted plays with small casts. And I also wanted something that's not gonna have very much props in it. Something that could be easily adapted to an online theater. Um, so that's why I ended up choosing the proposal and Riders to the Sea. Um, Sing's other plays are all actually very prop heavy. Something like um, In the Shadow of a Glen uh, or, or The Tinker's Wedding is like, they're the other two short ones I looked at, but it's like Tinker's Wedding is like probably got about hundred props in it. Whereas um, Riders to the Sea, I could cut it down to about three. A lot of us um, in the um, ME community and chronic illness community more widely have lived a lot of lives online, but it's more being, you know, you're on Facebook or Messenger and you're typing to each other and stuff like that. There wasn't a video side to it. And then um, when when COVID started and everybody got onto you know, Zoom and Jitsi and Skype and Facebook Live and whatever, everybody's on there now. So it's, it's kind of brought everybody else into the sort of the boat that we were already in. And because we'd already been doing this, we kind of had an advantage over other people certainly a psychological advantage. We're used to the isolation. We're used to, um, you know, not seeing people for a long time. We're, we're used to all of that. And um, so I think we were bad. We were, it wasn't a shock to us. We were better placed to sort of jump in and, and, and adapt to the new normal, as they say. And, uh, and then everybody else was there with us. So I'm not sure if any of the actors, um, um, well, possibly one of them, but I'm not sure if any of the other actors would have uh, been interested in um, being in an online online play like two, two or three years ago, if I'd asked them, or it, or if I'd put up a, like a casting call on backstage, I'm not sure who would have applied for it. Um, so I think that that's changed an awful lot. I just hope that it stays, that we, you know, the new art forms that we've created during this time don't get lost when things do, if they do go back to normal. Um, Mo, when you came across back, back, back across the wild, you say that you um, uh, did that in order to, to, to make a film about 1916. Uh, had you tried making films uh, whilst you were in London? Um, well, so I, I was saying just about London, and I, I think there's like a big um, kind of infrastructure as regards the uh, uh, film industry. There's, there's an industry, basically. There's a lot more money. So if you're in any way talented, you get sucked up into the industry. You usually become like an AD or something, you know? And um, so you have to pay your bills. And so you don't get to direct very early on that quickly, uh, or at least I found that difficult anyway. I mean, it just seemed that you needed uh, a lot of capital to begin. So uh, in Dublin, I would say that there, were, there was a film scene. Uh, it's, it's, um, I think it's becoming an industry. I think that we have a really good uh, Studio Troy Studios down in Limerick now, and we're getting another one that's going to be coming up in Greystones. That's just been okay by the county council. So, and we have Element Pictures and everything, and uh, which are brilliant production companies. They make like normal people and stuff. And um, so, yeah. So I think things are really changing now, but I still think that Ireland is so small that it kind of has to be a part of um, England and the US in a way, at least right now, anyway. Um, but so what it does allow for is there's lots of talented people on the ground. So if you want to make something as a director, if you want to break your teeth, 
and you don't have any money, you can just kind of say, well, listen, I've got no money, but does anyone want to make this? I'll pay for expenses. Do you want to make something? Do you like my script or whatever? And so because I had girls shot already, because I shot girls before I went to Rada, so I had a short film to show people that I was able to make a film. And so we just, uh, people just said, yeah, that's, I mean, the, the filmmaking community in, in Dublin and Ireland is lovely. Everyone's really helpful and everyone just wants to make stuff. So I started uh, to make films and like immediately direct, uh, write, direct, produce, edit. And I could as well. So whereas in, in London, I found that more difficult. That, 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 that smallness of what you call a scene, uh, that gives you more freedom, do you think? Uh, yeah, to certainly start out, like to take on a big role, um, to cut your teeth immediately, to start doing it immediately. It, it helps, definitely. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to each kind of to being in London or to being in Dublin. But at least in Dublin, you can make a rake of shorts. And if you're in any way talented, that starts to show. And then you can kind of go, you know, to the funders or to whoever. I want to be a director. Look, I've directed this, you know, with no money. Um, and then you get, then you start to get breaks, which, which I have. So I, 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 I was telling you, I, was, I did a Screen Ireland short there in the middle of COVID, made home written by Ivan Cush, and so I directed that. And that premiered at Cork International Film Festival there in November, and it's uh, now going to be having its Dublin premiere in the Dublin International Film Festival uh, in, um, I think it's March now coming up. So I've, ju I've just been told, so I'm putting the laurels now on the poster and everything. So so they're both kind of major film festivals, you know, so, uh, yes, yeah, so that's great. So, But I mean, that's, that, that, that's a lot of work that, that went before. Speaking of film festivals, you made your own. Yes, yeah, I did. So there was a, I thought it was odd that there wasn't like a comedy film festival and that often comedy films can be kind of pushed aside a little bit in the film festival circuit, certainly in Ireland anyway, because people kind of think, oh, you know, drama, so important. <laughs> I don't know why they, why they kind of seem to hold a little, a little bit higher sometimes, at least. Um, and so I just thought, well, there should be a comedy film festival. So I suppose I'll do it because no one else had done it. Uh, I was kind of waiting for someone else to do it for a few years and I thought, oh, sure, here, listen, I'll just do it myself. So I did it myself and it all, all went online this year and it was great, actually, really cool. Uh, you know, people from all over the world coming into Zooms and uh, talking to us about their films, great films, brilliant filmmakers out there. And um, yeah, then we had stand-up comedians as well performing on Zoom. And all the audiences coming in for that that was it was great it was had a real buzz around it was really enjoyable and the films were so funny so it was a great relief during covid you know i do have one final question actually and you both inspired me to it and it kind of comes in two parts but bear with me if you will and that is one having lived in both england and ireland would you call ireland home and if so what does home mean um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, uh, it's, it's home because I feel mo most comfortable here. I suppose I feel more comfortable here than I did in England. Um, um, I suppose it just means a place you can put down your roots and a place that you can grow. I suppose there wasn't much growing in England, really, because, you know, you couldn't get auditions and, um, you know, you couldn't make the films that you wanted to make because you didn't have the capital just needed money to be there really whereas in Ireland you don't <laughs> and um better or worse you know so I 
so much happier because I get to express myself here. I mean, there's still a fight uh, always. There always is when you're a creative, um, but it's just, it's much more doable here. Um, up until, you know, uh, well, say seven years ago, I would have said that London was my home. Um, I, as I say, I did, like I lived there by choice for most of my adult life. I mean, I knew, knew more whale goers in England than I do in Ireland. It, it seemed to be easier to speak Irish in England than it, or in London than it is here. And I would have, it would have definitely have been my home, but I think the London that was my home is gone. Um, the country that was my home is gone. Uh, it's, I, I don't want to get too political, but I think it has, it's been gradually destroyed over the last 10 years and it's just accelerated. I mean, that's why I left really. It takes a, it takes a while to settle into a new place and um, like I didn't build up my London network overnight. Um, but now I'd say, yeah, Ireland is definitely my home. But to me, it means a sense of security. And also it, it means a sense of sort of knowing what's going on and you know, knowing how, how things work, which is why I suppose I couldn't have said it was my home initially. Um, so you're figuring out how do you do this? Where do you go? How do you meet people? Um, how does how does even the industry you work in work in a different country? Um, yeah, all all of that sort of stuff. Um, that's what yeah, security, safety, friendship, family. Um, yeah, all of that I suppose. Safety. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, with me, Doug Devaney, and my guests, Mo O'Connell and Mary Tyler. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Nathan Mannion. Music by Jack Devaney. Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com, email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.